Hello, it's January 13th, 2021. My name is Simone, and this is a season three premiere of 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to an all new season of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday season. Well, as much as possible because this terrible disease called COVID is still out there. And I know many of you may know or know of someone who has been hit uh, by this awful disease, um, unfortunately. But hopefully with this newest season of 90s Crime Time, The stories you'll hear will maybe give some relief as you listen to some of these crazy crimes. Also, I know that on 90s Crime Time previously, um, I mentioned that I wanted to discuss crimes you may or may not have heard about much, and I still plan on doing so, but some 90s cases are just so fascinating to me. Uh, Some of you may have actually heard about some of these, so let's go ahead and dive into this crazy season premiere. Oh, and please, please, please stay tuned for a very special and kind of awesome announcement after the opinion piece. If you don't like the opinion piece, then you can just fast forward to the end for the announcement. Today's case is a case that lasted from 1992 to 1993, and it's very heartbreaking. This case takes place around the state of Washington, but primarily in Seattle, Washington, and it involves the subjects of an odd fascination, tragic deaths, and then a manhunt. Like I'll mention before every episode, I'll be giving an introduction, then read from cited sources, and then finally, I'll give my opinion. This case may leave you astonished, sad, and maybe a little sorrowful. Listener discretion is always advised. The year was 1993, and around King and Sonomish counties in the state of Washington, the people of these counties, as well as the entire state, saw a horrific pattern was happening. Someone had been setting multiple fires around the state, more specifically these counties, and the people were terrified. Things came to the ultimate fury back in September 1992, when the suspected criminal slash arsonist was suspected of setting a fire at Seattle's Four Freedoms House retirement home that claimed the lives of three elderly residents there. The residents of King and Sonomish counties and the state of Washington wanted to know who would do this to the innocent elderly and who would commit these arson crimes at all. Also wondering who committed these crimes was local resident George Keller. 
George Keller had been following the serial arsons for months, and he too was worried. He would watch TV, check the newspaper, and other media to look at reports of the fires and hope that the arsonist, now killer, would be found soon. On January 28, 1993, however, he was closer to an answer because that month, George was looking at his local newspaper and saw a sketch of the man suspected of being the arsonist. George took a glance at the sketch again and again and came to the terrible realization that he recognized the arsonist. And it would bring him great sorrow once he realized he was a murderer and had to turn him in. In the following case, you'll find out who George saw on the sketch, the events that happened before and during the fires, and the outcome in a case I title, Flames. In February 1993, the Keller family of Everett Washington released a statement to the public, and the statement read, quote, In this horrible time of sorrow and suffering, we wish to express our deepest compassion to every person, every family, every business, and every church harmed by our son and brother. Pain and loss has also come to our home. Our prayers are with you. End quote. Months later, on May 3, 1993, the Keller family patriarch, George Keller, spoke at a press conference. In front of TV cameras, Mr. Keller said, quote, This entire tragedy leaves our entire community with scars. Again, a word to the victims. All our life, we will be sorrowful for your pain and your loss. We shall never forget to pray for your healing, restoration, and peace. May God in his hope and his grace help all of us. Thank you." End quote. So how did the Keller family get to this point? Why were they thrust into the spotlight beginning in February 1993? Who was their son and brother who caused so much pain to their communities? Well, to get to the answer, let's take a brief journey back to the 1960s. Back in 1965, in the serene and beautiful town of Everett, Washington, lived a devout Lutheran couple named George and Margaret Keller. The two were very much in love and they wanted to add to their family, specifically some children. Their prayers were finally answered when on January 6, 1966, George and Margaret welcomed a bouncing baby boy, their first child, to the family. Margaret and George were over the moon. And according to George, he said, quote, there aren't adequate words to describe what it's like to hold your firstborn son in your arms, an excitement of what lies ahead, I cried with joy." End quote. 
But before the baby was born, the baby boy suffered a challenge when scarily, as he was being born, his umbilical cord was untied and he nearly lost his life while entering the world. Luckily, the baby boy survived and George and Margaret named their firstborn child and son, Paul Kenneth Keller. The Kellers were delighted to have Paul around and soon after they added two more children, a daughter named Ruth and another baby boy named Ben. George and Margaret raised their children in a loving and religious Lutheran household. The couple loved to watch their children grow and partake in many different humanitarian and Christian outreach programs, especially their oldest, Paul, who volunteered through his church, visiting elderly shut-ins and comforting their families when they became ill or died. But as George and Margaret added their other two children to the family, they started to notice something different about Paul. He wasn't excited about a new sibling, which can be expected with many children. But according to his parents, young Paul was downright scary to his younger siblings. For example, according to his mother Margaret, when Paul and his younger sister Ruth were allowed to go out and play, as soon as the children went outside, Paul pushed Ruth down the steps. When Margaret saw this, she disciplined Paul by telling him that he could have really hurt Ruth. But instead of feeling sorry for what he had done, Margaret said he just stared at her blankly and gave her a look as if his mother was in the way. Also, according to George, he said about Paul, quote, it was not unusual for Paul to bring Ruth or Ben to tears, end quote. According to reports, Paul would many times taunt his younger siblings by doing things such as tampering with their toys, ripping up their projects, or worse, like mentioning before, physical violence. When his parents would once again try and tell Paul that what he was doing was wrong, Paul would simply laugh. This is when George and Margaret realized something is seriously wrong with Paul. So they took young Paul to see different counselors and doctors who would sometimes prescribe him meds for hyperactivity, but nothing seemed to work. After his time with the counselors and medical professionals, Paul's actions only got worse. According to George, he said he witnessed Paul push Ruth under the water, and once he was disciplined again, it was just pure delight to him. It didn't bother him. As Paul's erratic and scary behavior continued, his mother Margaret did not know where to turn. Paul had already been to numerous doctors and counselors, and all he was given were some pills. When that didn't work, Margaret prayed every day and as often as possible for God to help her get through another day with Paul's behavior, and she prayed his behavior would stop. When it didn't, she decided to take another route. So when Paul was still a young child, she decided to take him to a neurologist to have him tested. Paul had already been through about 50 testings. Surely this time, with the specialist actually looking at his brain, they'd be able to tell her what was wrong with Paul. However, according to Margaret, all this doctor said was that Paul was hyperactive, which his parents already knew about. And when Margaret questioned what they should do about Paul, 
The doctor replied, quote, you'll be long suffering parents, end quote. As Paul got older, he still acted out, but most of his violent energy was directed towards more sinister things. Sure, he still picked with his younger siblings and gave his parents a hard time, but around the time he was eight years old, Paul's violent tendencies turned to something else, which was fire. According to his father, George, he began noticing that Paul would love to watch the fire trucks go by and listen to the sirens. Paul also was able to obtain a scanner so he would be able to listen for fire calls. Many times when a call came in, Paul would arrive to the scene before the firemen got there. He would ride in fire trucks with friends who were firefighters, and when he could, he would wear the uniforms to pretend he was one. His parents didn't think much of it because they thought he was just fascinated with a new hobby and had a unique interest. However, as his fascination with fire grew, his parents realized this hobby wasn't so safe. Sometime after noticing his new fascination, his parents received word that Paul had gotten into trouble for setting a small fire around his neighborhood. But he wasn't arrested, and when he did it again, his parents went to firefighters and requested their help to show Paul the dangers of setting fires. He looked up to them, so they thought with the firefighters' help, he'd stop. Paul's actions of setting fire did come to a halt, although his fascination with fire did not. But as he grew older, Paul's father, George, thought Paul had matured enough and was safe enough to join the family's advertising business. From first glance, George seemed to be right. Paul excelled at his job, and he did so well with the clients. George was so impressed with his son that he felt that once he retired, he could give the business to Paul. However, Paul's mother, Margaret, had different feelings. Once George hired Paul, Margaret felt uneasy. She knew he had violent tendencies and she knew her son had a quick temper. So to her, it was not a good idea for Paul to work there. Her beliefs were validated when she witnessed Paul get extremely angry when something small would fall out of place at work. And even worse, Margaret witnessed Paul choke his sister Ruth while in the office. When Margaret stopped him, he brushed it off as no big deal. With this incident, Margaret told George she thought Paul should be let go. But George stood by Paul, however, and they seemed to have a better relationship. Their relationship went so well that even though Paul had by this point gotten his own place, they continued to talk regularly on the phone. Things got even better for Paul when in 1989, he got married to a woman he met in church. His parents were proud and thought that maybe Paul had finally gotten the help and structure he needed. However, just a short time after he got married, his marriage unraveled 
and he and his wife divorced. And shortly after his divorce, Paul filed for bankruptcy. To the people who knew Paul and to his family, the old Paul started to show up again. George continued to believe that Paul was still okay and he continued to work the family business. And on one night in August 1992, George received his usual call from Paul. In this call, according to George, Paul said to him, quote, Dad, you ought to see the glow in this entire sky, end quote. Not too long after the phone call, George was watching his local news and the top report was that it was believed a serial arsonist was on the loose throughout the Seattle area. The news then proceeded to show a local storage unit billowing with black smoke and flames in which customers and employees had to run out quickly to avoid getting hurt. As George continued to follow the news in the following weeks, the news kept reporting on the fires the alleged arsonists had set around the state of Washington. The arsonists burned down buildings, churches, and homes, with some homes being burned while families were still in their homes. Some parents had to flee with their children and leave their belongings behind, whatever they had to do to make it out alive. Law officials were highly concerned and had no idea when the arsonists would strike next because just within months, they had set more than 100 fires and law officials had no answers to give the people of Washington. As the weeks and months went by and the serial arsonist was still terrorizing many parts of Washington and many of the fires were near the Keller home. And speaking of the Keller home, on January 28th, 1993, as George Keller was reading his local newspaper, he saw a headline regarding the arson that said, Someone knows this person. And next to the headline were three sketches of a man that was the suspect. As George kept looking at the sketches, he was in disbelief because the sketches looked like his son, Paul. He thought about it for a while and he realized it was Paul. Paul was the arsonist. When he told Margaret about what he saw, she was obviously devastated and the couple decided to pray together. Soon after, George decided to turn Paul in and the now 27-year-old Paul Keller was arrested in February 1993 and charged with multiple counts of arson. For turning his son in, George received a $25,000 reward in which George donated to a local Lutheran church. And although they were sad that they had to turn Paul in, George and Margaret were relieved that who they believed to be the serial arsonist was off the streets, even if he was a family member. Also, they were relieved that no one was hurt or killed. Well, that was until his family learned that Paul was the mastermind behind a tragic event that happened on September 22nd 
1992, in Seattle. That morning, around 8 a.m., a fire broke out at the Four Freedoms House retirement home that housed primarily older, lower-income elderly residents. After the residents were evacuated, more than 30 of them were injured. But once the flames and smoke cleared, there would be three victims that were more than injured. They were dead, and their names were Bertha Nelson, age 93, Mary Doris, age 77, and Adeline Stockness, also age 77. The Four Freedoms House caused more than $1 million in damages, and at first, the fire was classified as accidental. But then, investigators later found evidence of arson. And after Paul was turned in by his parents to authorities months later in 1993, he denied taking part in any of the fires. But after investigators pressed Paul for hours and he didn't budge, the detectives changed their tune and actually praised his work. They told Paul they were impressed on how he set these fires and how much damage he caused. Not catching on to their game, Paul began to brag about all the fires he set, not realizing the detectives were using his words against him. Paul then said he had no intention of actually killing anyone, let alone three elderly. He also stated to detectives about the arsons, quote, When I knew I had done them, I was sad, not excited. No joy, just confusion or remorse. I thought, there goes somebody's business, end quote. And with that, Paul Keller was arrested six months to the day after the most devastating arson wave in the surrounding counties, history began. He set more than 40 fires, caused an estimated $3 million in property damage, and ended three lives. Fast forwarding to December 1993, Paul pled guilty for 32 of those fires and then pled guilty to three counts of first-degree murder for the deaths that occurred at the senior home. Before he was sentenced, the judge at the trial said, quote, Society deserves to be protected from you. Your victims suffered in every way imaginable. When the victims testified in court, I watched everyone in the courtroom vividly, and I think everyone was terribly moved, except for one person, and that was you, Paul Keller. You did not respond. There is no way in good consciousness that I would put you on the streets where you could ever make another fire." End quote. After she spoke, the judge sentenced Paul to 107 years in prison. But that wasn't the end of the Keller family's sorrows. After Paul was named the arsonist and the killer of the elderly women, George Keller's business plummeted. The Keller family lost their many clients, the business overall, their savings, and their home. However, they eventually got back on their feet and continued to visit Paul in prison, as well as running their own ministry. The story of Paul Keller comes from the sources of the Seattle Times, the Kitsap Sun, the Associated Press, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, guys. Um, so 
let's dive into the opinion piece. Um, I'm not going to hold you along on this because it's pretty much all self-explanatory. This was a terrible, terrible case. Um, however, for one, if that was my son, I would have the utmost, the utmost shame and embarrassment. Like, I raised him. I gave birth to him. And this is who he, who he became. I'm embarrassed. And, like, it's not about me. But, I mean, because people lost their lives. The three elderly women lost their lives. But it's such an embarrassment. And it's like, I would wonder, like, what did I do wrong? And I know, like, te- medical technology has advanced since the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. But for the neurologist to tell them you'll be long-suffering parents like that's 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 hope that's encouragement not um you know I, I mean like I read it was they went to George and Margaret Keller went to test Paul um over 50 times and finally Margaret was like let me take him to an actual neurologist to see what in the world is wrong with Paul there's something wrong it's not just behavior it's it's something deeper than that it's it's something in his brain it's, it's something that's wrong and um, I still don't know what's wrong with Paul Keller. I don't, uh, for me, I feel like there was a mental disorder. I don't think it was just evilness. I, I don't know if it's like a dis- disassociative um, disorder or whatever, or personality, but something, even to me, like I said before many episodes, like I don't study the brain or anything like that, but I'm not a criminologist, but to me, it seemed like something was truly mental about Paul. It wasn't just anger issues. It wasn't just you know something that happened in his life I don't think so now I did read somewhere that he um set a fire at set the fire at the retirement home because he had not too long before that lost one of his grandparents but I still feel like there's something there before the grief of losing his grandparent um also um I'm with Margaret on this knowing what he was as a child you know he wasn't stable as a child and now he's working at the family business like I don't go for that. I love my son, but no, like he clearly acts out. Um, the smallest thing can set him off. Um, who knows? He may set a fire here, you know, I, and, and, and I, and I can understand in the beginning that, um, what was I going to say? I can understand in the beginning that, um, oh, like Paul has a, a, a fire, you know, fascination weird, but you know, he's, you know, interested in fire trucks and fire calls and, oh, look at there, he has a little scanner. I don't know how he got it, but, you know, that's, that's neat, it's interesting. Um, again, you know, something to not terrorize his brother and sister, you know, he's fascinated with this fire career. Maybe he wants to be a firefighter when he grows up. And it turns out, no, he wants to set them. He doesn't want to put them out. He wants to set them when he gets older. He wants to, um, he, he's fascinated with the flames. He's fascinated with the smoke and what the fire can do, what damages. And when he said it's an interrogation, there goes another business. Like, this is what he wanted to do. And his his thing was arson. And it's so unfortunate that due to his fascination, three elderly women as old as 93 had to lose their life because of this guy's fascination and it's really sad because I have a grandmother who's 90 years old and luckily she's not in a home but I can only imagine the terror that my family would go through and she would go through if she was in a home where she's supposed to be safe here comes some lunatic uh, well lunatic not lunatic but lunatic you know setting a fire and 
and he said he didn't mean to kill anybody and i i do believe that for some reason and maybe he didn't he wanted to set another fire and on the other hand maybe i don't i don't want to call him someone i don't want to call paul keller someone who deliberately wanted to kill somebody because of his grief of losing that grandparent not too long before the retirement home fire but maybe it was a motive like we'll never know but he said at the interrogation it was not a motive and he just his fascination went too far and i can only imagine lastly how paul oh not paul but george and um margaret keller were like okay well we got him off the street it's unfortunate we had to turn our son in but you know no one was hurt or killed turn you know turns out there's three elderly women your son killed as far as the fire and that is the ultimate heartbreak for me knowing that for me like anybody murdered is sad it really is to me unless it's self-defense um but to me i feel like the most helpless are the children and the elderly for the most part and when they lose their lives especially to something heinous like this or stupid like this it's just like you'll never know when you'll like run into somebody who's a nut job and you know you can lose your life over something just minuscule and it's really really sad for everybody around and when I saw um the clips of George Keller's press conference it was like he could not stop crying which is totally totally understandable like his son he was so happy to have this son his firstborn son and child Paul and he grew up and you know to be a killer a triple murderer accident or no accident and it's it's just heartbreaking and also I was kind of surprised I said lastly but I have another point guys um I was kind of surprised that after his parent Paul's parents turned him in his business George Keller's business plummeted like you would think it would be you know happy occasion you know the clients would remain like oh yay responsible parents were turning in their son who did all this but they stopped coming I don't know if it was guilt by association like okay your son's crazy or your son's unstable and you you may be unstable too like I don't know I was just like that was surprising like why would you stop supporting them when their son did the crimes not them but like I said we'll never know luckily they've gotten back on their feet they do have a ministry I saw on Facebook and they you know continue to have active lives and they take pictures with Paul while he's in prison and he's not going to get out which is unfortunate but they still have that true love for their son, which I think is pretty commendable. And that's it. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the season three premiere of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you were intrigued. Also, just a few announcements. The biggest is 90s Crime Time is officially on YouTube or coming to YouTube. Yay! Some of the followers on 90s Crime Time's Instagram were telling me it was a good idea and at first I was like no I'm not a videographer and I have no interest where to begin but then some other followers requested it again and I was like okay sure I'll give it a go so uh please check out 90s crime time on Instagram um the link is in the show notes and I'd love for you to check it out spread the word and subscribe um on the YouTube page you'll get some more info on the podcast episodes and more of an opinion and also I'd like for you to um, for you guys to leave your opinions on the videos um, also on the YouTube page I'll be talking about 90s cases that are not yet on any other 90s crime times uh, social media pages or made into an episode 
so that'll be fun right <laughs> um um so to hear more about um paul keller's case and more of my opinion please 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 uh subscribe to 90s crime times official youtube page and once again you can find the link in the show notes also don't forget to leave a rating or review on any of um the social media pages and on wherever you listen to the show i would really love for you to well love to know what you guys think and please hopefully be nice um also oh also uh 90s crime time later this week will be on patreon um once again some of the 90s crime time instagram followers were like hey do you have a patreon and i'm like no <laughs> i don't know how to really set that up and um i know a lot of fellow true crime podcasters um use patreon to boost their other episodes that are ad free but 90s crime time really doesn't run on ads so i'm going to come up with some content for that so look out later this week if you will for uh 90s crime time on patreon.com um if it's all up um by this week you can check it out if not i'll make an announcement next week saying it's up and ready um yeah once again uh stay safe and healthy thanks for listening wash your hands wear your mask pray that covid is over soon and i'll see you next week for a brand new episode of 90s crime time (music) 